All right. It's good to be with you guys tonight. Um, my name's Jeff, and I work with the high school ministry here in our church here at The Crossing. And I know there are a lot of familiar faces tonight. I know there are a lot of new faces. A lot of us might be new to Columbia, might be new to Christianity. Um, I'm so glad that each one of us is here. Um, we really need each other uh, for every day of life, and especially tonight as we consider another barrier that is in the way of God's mission, of God's purpose for our life. And tonight's barrier is especially heavy, it's especially tender, and in light of that fact, um, let's start our time together just by praying, asking for God's grace and presence as we, as we spend our time here. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your movement of grace, of restoration, that you're working in our lives, that you're working in our world. Thank you for everyone who's here tonight, the fact that your movement of restoration includes our unique time together tonight. We pray for the movement of your spirit, that we would see you as you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to start by telling you about the tattoo that I couldn't get out of my mind. A tattoo that I couldn't stop thinking about. And, and, and like most things that kind of changed my life, uh, this story starts in Caldi's Coffee, downtown Columbia. Um, I'm sitting in Caldi's Coffee, and I'm chugging coffee. And I don't drink, some of us drink coffee, and that's a good thing. I chug coffee. I drink so much of it. Um, I might have a problem. I think it's actually an advantage, but I'll let you uh, think that, uh, whatever you want of that. I'm sitting in Caldi's Coffee, having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he tells me this story about the tattoo that I'll never forget, that changes the way that I think of my life. And the story has to do with a man who's uh, a convicted felon, who's in prison, and his release date is coming up. He's about to be freed. Um, but before he is released from prison, he wants to get this unique tattoo to commemorate his past and present life. He wants to remember it. And so what's unique about this tattoo is two things, the, the place, the location of the tattoo, and the content of the tattoo. Now, the place of that tattoo blows me away to begin with. Uh, this guy wants to get, he's about to be freed, he wants to get a tattoo on his forehead, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a tattoo on your forehead, but that's a bold move. Like, I think I'm pro-tattoo, tattoos are great, bold move if you're going to go for the forehead. Like, you just, that's okay. Um, what, but that did not blow my mind. That did not blow my mind. What blew my mind is what he wanted the tattoo to say. He wanted this tattoo to spell out F-E-L-O-N. Felon. Now, think about that. That is more than a tattoo. Tattooing the word felon on your forehead is more than a tattoo, isn't it? Tattooing the word felon on your forehead says, I am not accepted. I am rejected. I have no ability for connection. I am unloved. This tattoo would totally distort his identity, wouldn't it? Every time you look in the mirror, all you see is felon. No personhood, no, no real identity. And it wouldn't just distort his identity. It would distort his purpose, his ability to live into the world with a purpose. Think about this with me for a second. Um, how hard would it be to get a job with felon permanently marking your forehead? How hard would it be to connect with other people socially, to have real relationships with people? Felon. It's more than just a tattoo. 
Now, thankfully, he didn't actually go through with it. He had a friend who was with him, one of his cellmates, who, con who convinced him not to get that tattoo. And I think that's a really good thing. But, but here's the thing. Here's the reality. And here's why that tattoo, the desire for that tattoo, blew my mind. The reality is that that prisoner, that man, was so close to being free. He's so close to being free. And yet, in another way, freedom is so far away from him. And that's why I can't stop thinking about that tattoo, because I am that guy. I am that guy. So close to being free. Might as well be free, but freedom feels so far away. I'm that guy, and I think that all of us can relate to that story, to that desire. And I don't know exactly what he did to end up in prison, but whatever it was, it was weighty enough, it was heavy enough for him to feel the need to permanently mark himself with felon. Behind that tattoo, behind that desire, is the unraveling work of shame. Shame. What's shame? Shame is not a logical thing that we think about. It's not something that we are taught, right? Shame is not something that we learn in school or from our parents explicitly. Shame is the lie that says, because of what you've done, you are now unworthy. It's like an internal conversation, right? Because of what you've done or because of what's been done to you, you're not lovable anymore. Shame unravels us, turns us into something that we were never meant to be. Shame is different from other things like conviction. Conviction is something that, um, something that we experience when we know that we're loved and, and that we need to grow out of the love that we've received. But shame says you can't grow because you're not loved. Conviction draws us closer to God as we become more like Jesus. Shame separates us from God, distances us from God, because it says you have nothing to do with Jesus. Shame exploits what we've done, what's been done to us. Now, shame is that internal conversation that says you think you're so close to being free. You think you're so close to being free, but you're so far away from real freedom. That's what shame does to us. You think you're so close, but you're so far away. Now, here's a question for us tonight as we start our time together. How is shame unraveling your life? How does shame do that? Most of us don't want to tattoo the word felon on our foreheads, but shame invades the vulnerable spots of our lives, all of us. So it might not be felon, but it might say porn addict, substance abuser, lonely, unwanted, undesirable, social reject, unworthy. Shame marks us, it unravels us. And if any of those words strike a chord with you tonight, if they sound familiar, I want you to know before we go any further that you are not alone. I know that because of my own life, my own story, and of people who are really close to me, that shame has left that permanent mark on so many of us. You are not alone. Shame affects all of us. But it's not the way that life is supposed to be. That marking, that vandalism of shame is not the way it's supposed to be. In God's story, in the big picture story of world history and of the biblical story, we know that human beings are made to have an intimate connection to God as creator, to one another as fellow human beings, and to the purposes, the plan of God. Right? So the Bible talks about the fact that mankind is made in the image of God, 
which gives us a profound identity of worth. And because we're made in God's image, we also have a purpose to live into, to extend God's creation, to cultivate it, to live into it with meaningful work, to be a part of God's masterpiece. Genesis, the Genesis account of creation, uh, even notes this really interesting phrase. It says that before sin enters the world, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Now, that's a weird thing to note, right? Why, Why would they say that they were naked and unashamed? And of note, it is not necessarily the physical nakedness, the physical vulnerability, but the emotional vulnerability of being known, of being connected to, of being woven together as individuals, as a people, and with God and his purposes for us. That's the way life is supposed to be. Humanity woven into the fabric of God's masterpiece. But we know we don't have to go very far in the biblical story to see that that masterpiece starts to become unraveled, right? Shortly after Adam and Eve fall to the destructive power of sin, we read this in Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Every point of connection that God intended for us, connection to God, connection to one another, connection to his purposes for what it means to be human and live into his masterpiece, everything is unraveled. So instead of being made in the image of God, instead of being truly human, Adam and Eve are marked with dehumanized, unworthy, unlovable, unwanted. Shame leaves its mark. And we see in Genesis 3-7 that when shame leaves its mark, it has us cover up, doesn't it? It's interesting, Adam and Eve cover up with fig leaves. They hide. The great lie of shame, shame comes to us and says, here, uh, you're exposed, you're vulnerable now, that's uncomfortable, so wear this mask. Cover up. Don't let people see what's really going on. Don't let yourself be vulnerable. But the tricky thing is that when shame gives us a mask, the, the mask is not there to protect us. The mask isn't there to protect you, it's there to protect the shame. Hiding behind the mask, extinguishing vulnerability does not protect us, but it protects the shame and creates more unraveling. Now, let's pause really quickly to clarify the scope of the unraveling effects of shame really quickly. Because the first thing that I tend to notice, and I think a lot of us tend to notice when we think about shame and and its effect of vandalism and unraveling our lives is the way it affects us personally. And it does. Shame profoundly affects our personal stories. But, But it goes beyond that, right? The enemy of God, Satan, the accuser, injects shame into the world, into creation, not just to unravel us personally, not just to jack with you and me. Satan, the accuser, introduces shame in the world to unravel us as a people, to disconnect us from one another. He does it ultimately to unravel the creation, the masterpiece of God. Satan uses shame to be a barrier to God's mission. It's a barrier to God's mission. But the story doesn't stop there. Shame does not have the final word. And we we go on when we read the story that even though uh, shame unravels humanity, God immediately starts to weave it back together. We're going to see in Genesis 3.21, this is what we read. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Think about that. Adam and Eve, shame, 
no more desire for, for, for vulnerability, hiding, covering up, putting on the mask, but God draws near. God provides. And this act of God drawing near and God providing sets the trajectory for the rest of the story, for the true story of shame, in which God weaves us back together to weave his masterpiece together. God weaves us back together to weave his masterpiece together. Shame destroys creation, God renews it. And that's what we see in the New Testament as well. It's the same story. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're going to camp out here. This is going to be kind of our hinge verse for the night. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation, new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. God makes creation new again. And because of this trajectory, shame does not own the story God weaves us together to weave his masterpiece together. But how does he do that? That's a tall order, right? Things have gotten very bad for humanity. How does God weave us together? Tonight, we're going to see that, that um, through the biblical story, God weaves us together through the cross of Jesus, together as his people, back into his mission. That's where we're going. God weaves us back together through the cross of Jesus, back together as his people, and back into his mission. First, we start with God weaves us back together through the cross of Jesus. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5.17 for a second. Notice with me this curious phrase. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. What's that mean, in Christ? Do we talk about being in Christ very often? What does it mean to be in Christ? Christ. We're going to look at another passage by the Apostle Paul, another letter of his in Galatians to, to little, unpack this a little bit more. Um, in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. That's weird. <laughs> I've been co-crucified with Jesus. We ask ourselves, where was Paul on the day that Jesus was crucified? Where was Paul? He wasn't with Jesus. He wasn't at the cross. How can Paul say that he was co-crucified with Jesus? What Paul is saying is that the finished work of Jesus on the cross, on a Roman cross in real history, that that act of God transcends the barriers of space and time. It's kind of weird, but it's so real that even if we weren't physically there, it's as good as if we were there. Space and time are not barriers for the work of Jesus on the cross. We need to think about that word crucified for a moment because this has to do with being in Christ. We are now in Christ, but why does crucifixion matter for shame? We know that on the cross, Jesus takes the punishment for our sin. The justice of God is poured out on Jesus, right? But, but if we go back into the ancient world, into ancient Rome, we see that Jesus not only deals a death blow to sin, but also to shame. The Romans, ancient Roman world, did not use crucifixion simply as a tool for death. It was definitely that. But the cross, crucifixion, was a tool of shaming people. It was an instrument of shame. 
And we know this because of what crucifixion involved, right? So the victim would be stripped naked, totally exposed, totally vulnerable. How uncomfortable is that? How embarrassing is that? They're mocked, severely beaten, severely beaten, severely dehumanized, made into less than they were meant to be. The crucifixion was meant to be an act of unraveling. And if we were walking around ancient Rome and we lived in polite society, we probably would not utter the word cross or crucifixion. Now, if we lived in impolite society in ancient Rome, it wouldn't be uncommon for somebody to slander another person saying, hey, go get yourself crucified. You know what I think of you? Go get yourself crucified. It's an instrument of death, but also an instrument of shame. It's a tool for unraveling humanity. So when Jesus dies on a Roman cross, he takes on the full assault of shame. He's vandalized on our behalf. Now, the good news for us, the good news for us is that when Jesus dies a shameful death, he puts shame to death. When Jesus dies a shameful death for us, he puts shame to death. So no longer are we felon, we are saved in Christ, loved, accepted, worthy. Jesus puts shame to death on the cross, not because of anything that we've done, but because of his love for us. God weaves us back together through the cross of Jesus. But here's the reality, real talk. Here's the reality. This is a beautiful, profound truth. But all of us know, whether we're not quite sure what we think of Jesus or whether we're really striving to figure out what it means to live in Christ and faithfully follow Jesus, the unraveling effects of shame still impact our lives today, don't they? To be in Christ and to still feel unraveled, vandalized. Because that's true and shame doesn't go away overnight, we need to remember the second way that God is weaving us back together. God weaves us back together as a people, freeing us into vulnerability and connection again. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.17 again. We see if anyone is in Christ. Now, when we think of in Christ, I first think of my individual life. And we should. There's a profound restoration that happens in our individual lives. But the reality is, is we can't stop with our individual lives. Notice with me that Paul connects being in Christ with new creation. That phrase, new creation, is all over the letters of Paul. When Paul talks about new creation, he's talking about something so much bigger than our, than our individual lives. New creation means the, the movement of God through his people to restore all things, to get back to the way that life is supposed to be. So new creation might seem like an ambiguous phrase to us, Maybe a throwaway phrase, I see it in the Bible, I keep going. But for Paul, new creation is so intentional. It's so intentional. New creation means that God is on a trajectory to get humanity and the world back to the way life is supposed to be. What does new creation have to do with shame, though? How is that connected to shame? We remind ourselves that in the beginning, before sin intrudes, before we're vandalized, before we're unraveled, that human beings exist with perfect connection, perfect ability to be known, per perfect vulnerability between each other and between God. Shame gives us the mask to cover up, to hide, but the victory of Jesus frees us to take off the mask 
and connect. But that's terrifying, isn't it? I'm terrified just sitting here talking about taking off the mask. It's risky, right? Will I be accepted? Will I be loved? Or will vulnerability and taking off the mask, will that just perpetuate the unraveling of shame in my life? How do we move forward knowing that taking off the mask and living with vulnerability is so hard? I think we're helped when we remember that God is a little bit like Michelangelo. It's a weird thing to say. Not the Ninja Turtle, the, the, high, the, the artist, right? What do I mean by that? The great high Renaissance artist Michelangelo, he was different from all of his contemporaries in a really significant way. So when most artists, sculptors in his day and age would look at a slab of marble, what would they see? They'd just see a slab of marble. Not really worth much. Worth about the cost of a slab of marble. Something that needs to be worth, somebody needs to be worked on. It's as common as anything else. One is just as good as any other. That's what most artists saw when they saw a slab of marble. Not Michelangelo. When Michelangelo looked at a slab of marble, he saw a finished, beautiful work of art that just needed to be revealed. He said that it was already there. He saw his role as simply being to chip away what wasn't supposed to be there so that what is there could be revealed. Right? It's not just a slab of marble. When Michelangelo looks at a slab of marble, he says, masterpiece. That's a good and beautiful thing that, that just needs to be freed, that just needs to be chiseled away so that what's really there can be there. Now, think with me about 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The new creation has come. New creation is already breaking into reality, is already breaking into our lives, into our world. Now, shame wants to say, you are just a slab of marble. You're not worth much. Remember what you did last weekend? Remember what happened to you when you were younger? You're just a slab of marble. God looks at you and says, no, you're a new creation. You're a work of art that needs to be revealed. And I'll chisel away. It's not to hurt you. I'll chisel away to make you into what you really are. You're a new creation. You're a new creation. Taking off the mask is hard and it's terrifying. It's terrifying for me, I promise. But it's an act of freedom. Being what we really are. Now, this sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful. What on earth does that look like? For many of us, the first thing, this is going to sound so simple, but it's so impactful. It's so hard. For many of us, the first thing for God to do his chiseling work of freeing us into who we really are is to have a conversation. It might be the first conversation where we share with somebody the real sources of shame in our lives. So for many of us, uh, it, it might be a mentor or a spiritual leader, somebody that we, that we know and that we trust, and that might be the first conversation that we have. After that, God gives us to each other through friendships, small groups, to be able to help each other take off the mask. Here's a question. Are there one or two people in your life who know what kind of mask you're prone to put on? Not everybody. Are there one or two people who know the real sources of shame in your life? Are there one or, two, one or two people who have permission in your life to say, hey, I think that God's chiseling away here. I think that God's revealing something. 
Are there people in your life who can remind you when it feels so painful, when it seems so hard, when it seems like the worst idea to be vulnerable? Are there people in your life who can say, hey, I just want you to know God is revealing who you really are. You're not just a slab of marble. God's revealing who you really are in Jesus. That's a really hard thing to do, and for some of us, those relationships might seem so distant right now. And can I just encourage you, um, if, if you're not plugged into a ministry here in Columbia, whether it's Veritas or another ministry in our community, that you would get plugged into a small group. And it's a great context to grow and being able to be chiseled away at, to be freed into who we actually are. Through real sharing and real listening, which listening is a profound act of love, by the way, through real sharing and real listening, God is chiseling away at us, freeing us into who we actually are. He weaves us back together. Now, if we're going to talk about freeing, being freed into vulnerability and taking off the mask, there are uh, two quick things I think we, just, we have to pause and name before we go on. We have to. Some of us in this room tonight have been victims of abuse. If we're going to talk about vulnerability and sharing and extinguishing the power of shame, we have to name the reality that, that shame works in a uniquely horrible way through abuse. If you're here tonight and part of your story involves abuse, maybe that's emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, maybe a combination, the first thing you need to hear from me is, I'm so sorry. Like, like, really, I am so sorry that that's a part of your life. That is so far removed from the way that life is supposed to be. Shame will try to tell you that what's happened to you is your fault. And it is not. It is not your fault. You're free in Jesus. And you have freedom to process that with other people. If shame has been preying upon past or present uh, seasons of abuse in your life, can I just encourage you to please have a conversation with somebody, maybe even sometime soon, maybe this week, maybe this summer. But, but I want you to know that this is a safe place to process that, that area of shame in your life. This is a safe place to process in addition to abuse, I, I just want to also name another unique area that, that shame just invades our lives and vandalizes us, and that's through the power of addiction. Addiction. It's not just for substance abuse or alcohol. Maybe uh, sources of addiction are pornography or other things like that. But, but addiction will, will say, you are beyond help. You will never get sober. You are a joke. You think you're in Jesus? Look at what you're doing. That's what shame wants to say. The reality is this, is that God is not waiting on the sidelines for you to get your act together before he starts weaving you back together. Let me say that again. If addiction is a reality in your life, whatever kind of addiction it is, God is not sitting on the sidelines of your life waiting for you to get cleaned up, waiting for you to get your act together before he starts weaving you together. You have permission to struggle with addiction, to live with addiction, and be restored by Jesus. There are even uh, groups within our church, within The Crossing, who specialize in just uh, getting people together who are dealing with addiction recovery and figuring out what that looks like in light of being in Jesus. And so if addiction is a part of your life, again, I encourage you, 
Think about having a conversation sometime soon. Not to earn God's love, but because God loves you and he's weaving you back together. And by the way, you can experience vulnerability and connection even if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, right? Like, you don't have to be 100% sure what you think about Christianity. You don't have to be 100% in following Jesus before God works in you and through you to process the sources of shame, right? It can start now. God weaves us back together, freeing us into vulnerability. What's the point, though? What is the point of God weaving our lives back together, of weaving us together in vulnerability? Remember, shame doesn't just unravel our individual lives. It it vandalizes and unravels our life together, and it unravels God's priceless creation. And because that's true, God's work of weaving life back together will include the fullest scope of everything he's made. So um, we step back and we think about the reality that God weaves us together individually, as a people, so that we be rewoven into his mission. Now, we go back to, uh, to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. When we read, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. We see that God's work, God's mission of new creation, restoration, is happening in us now. Like right now. God is working to weave every square inch of reality of the world back together. That's crazy, right? God's working even now. I think Ephesians 2.10 helps clarify this for us and figure out what does it mean for us. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork. We're God's handiwork created, here again, in Christ Jesus. What for? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're created in Christ to do good works that God prepared for us to do. You guys see what this means? I think this is, this is one of the most profound things I'm learning about Christianity. This means that we are the thread that God is using to weave creation back together again. We are the thread. God's people are the thread that God is using to restore his masterpiece. The point of battling shame, the point of taking off the mask is not just for our personal victories. Like, that's a good thing. Amen. Personal victories, that's a good thing. That's a win. But the ultimate goal of taking off the mask, the ultimate goal of vulnerability, the ultimate goal of Jesus' finished work on a cross and his resurrection is the restoration of all creation. God's ultimate victory. God's ultimate victory. His priceless masterpiece is being renewed through the life of his people. Now, there's another priceless masterpiece in history that helps us get another angle at what God's doing here. This is helpful for me. The famous Dutch painter Rembrandt has a work of art that is so valuable that it actually is priceless. Like the institution that holds it will not sell it. It does not have a valuation. It's called the Night Watch. And now this priceless masterpiece, priceless though it is, over the course of its history, it's actually been vandalized by intruders. So it's been sprayed with acid, it's been slashed with knife marks, made into something less than it was meant to be, right? This masterpiece is priceless, it's made, and it's distorted, it's vandalized, it's actually unraveled because of the knife marks. Now, what happens when there's a priceless masterpiece that's vandalized, that's unraveled? 
Does the art institution just throw it out because now it's worthless? Is it worthless now? Of course not. Because it's worth so much, it's worth restoring. It's worth weaving back together. So months of expensive, time-consuming, painstaking work of actually weaving the masterpiece back together turned the night watch into what it actually was meant to be all along. The masterpiece is made, it's unraveled, and it's woven back together again. Restoration of the masterpiece is beautiful. It's beautiful. Because we are all of us, because we as the people of God, Christians all around the world over the centuries, because we're the thread that God uses to weave his masterpiece together, that means that our life together is meant to enter into every dark place, every dark corner of the world where shame thinks that it reigns. And we shine the light of Jesus there. That means our dorm rooms, our classrooms, our labs, from small groups to student teaching, in Greek life and in organizations like IJM, in the hospital, in our jobs, in our internships, at Shakespeare's, at Addison's, through the church into all of creation, every square inch of the world and every square inch of our lives is fair game for God's work, God's work of weaving things back together again. Now hear me out. As we get ready to leave this place and go back to life, Shame will try to convince you. Shame will try to convince you that you can't be the thread that God uses to weave his masterpiece together. Shame will tell you, how could God work with you? Do you think you're even a Christian? God says, you are in Christ. You are in Jesus, and you are part of my new creation. Shame says, why don't you put this mask on? Being vulnerable is too hard. It's too risky. But, but God looks at you and says, no, you're free. I'm making you into who you really are. And I'm chiseling away in community to free you. Shame says you're not really free. Shame says you think you're so close to real freedom in Jesus, but it's so far away. But God says, no, no, shame doesn't have the last word in this story. In Jesus, you are a part of me weaving the world back together again. You are my handiwork. And I'm working in and through you to take the world back to the way it's always meant to be. As the worship team comes back up and we get ready to sing again, let's remember together the true story of shame. That around the world, in Columbia, Missouri, in our social circles, in our personal lives, People are living with the reality of that prisoner, the prisoner who's so close to being freed, yet also so far away because of shame. That's all of us. The big question is, will we live into God's freeing work of weaving the world back together again? Will the world see God's work within the church? Will they see it in student ministries in Columbia, Missouri? Will they see it in you? Just like the restored Rembrandt masterpiece is displayed for the world to see, people come from far and wide to see it and experience it. So we are a people who are on display in the world to the glory of God. Shame has unraveled us. It's unraveled our world. But shame does not have the last word. In Jesus, God has the last word.
and his last word continues to move into our lives and into our world one day at a time with the big picture in mind. God's last word says, I am weaving you together to weave my masterpiece together. You are in Jesus. You are free. I love you more than you know, and I will work in you, and I will work through you more than you know. Be the thread that I use to restore my masterpiece. Be a part of my masterpiece. Amen. Amen.